0: For 50 years, psychology textbooks used the tragic story of a murdered young woman to teach students about the devastating impact of inaction by neighbors. The magic number, 38, was chosen by the media as the number of careless onlookers who heard the woman's demise in real time and did nothing. But the true story of what happened that night teaches us that even when there are bystanders, there are still plenty of helpers willing to come running when they're called to aid a beloved friend. This week's episode is The Murder of Kitty Genovese, Part 1.
1: never have we had more people reach out in such a small period of time to tell us we love you you got something wrong you should cover this case
0: not not since i my canadian money snafu <laughs> yeah. have we had uh and it was a quite of a, a bit of a throwaway line where you just mm-hmm. sort of said oh it's kind of like that case the bystander which to your credit and i think most people were understanding that's exactly how it's taught in the textbooks mm-hmm. and paris confirmed he took psychology classes at unt he took it in high school i took ap psychology for i think it was just a one semester class in high school they teach you that that's a i mean you go back and mm-hmm. go oh yeah and and unfortunately one of kitty's nieces said the same thing oh i got taught this in my textbook yeah. and i didn't realize that it was actually my aunt um i will say The human memory isn't uh, spot on because some people said, you got this wrong. Dozens of people helped. That's also not true. No, This is much like everything we cover. uh, You think it's one way. Maybe the media has it another way. The truth is a little bit in between. Mm -hmm. There are some shitty actors. There are some mistakes were made. And uh, it's not quite as clear cut as like, oh, everyone came and rushed in love. But it's also not true. The story that's put out there of a bunch of people heard this and did absolutely nothing right. that's definitely not the truth
1: 38 of the people matter. watched this woman be stalked and killed attacked three times it did nothing is definitely a media driven narrative that is yeah. very false
0: and the person that wrote it was a respected journalist oh very and so, yeah Keen and, and of it-
1: journalism at the time
0: and the New York Times was the moon, the New mm-hmm. York Times, the monocle and mustache. Ooh. And yeah, so Mr. It's... Monopoly.
1: He was a writer for them. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> he was the he's a personification. <laughs> uh didn't we decide the Monopoly guy doesn't have a monocle? Isn't that what Mandela effect thing? That's right. That's right. Um, I think. Uh but the guy in Ace Ventura too does have a monocle that he goes, the Monopoly guy. Um I don't know that anybody knows that reference, but me. Um, I know, I know it. Okay. Um. So, yeah, so it's uh, interesting to see, much like a lot of these cases, this is an early, early, early 1960s ex- uh, example of the media just sort of distorting and twisting mm-hmm. the narrative to and fit what sells papers.
1: In a way that no one could anticipate how it, that, uh, deciding to kind of, Rewrite how a story went on just one night in New York would shape how people are taught over the next 50 years. It it changed what her brother did with his life, which inevitably he's now a double amputee because of. I mean, it is. It's a very good example of how we should always in, in journalism, you should stick to the truth because you never know how your spin on things. Even if it, you're because they say, "Well, we were basically telling the same thing." No, you weren't. No, you mm-hmm. weren't at all. Maybe. And look at everything that happened because of it, and still happens because of it. And like mm-hmm. you said, this is what we were taught in school. I had never really looked at this case. I just kept seeing the documentary, "The Witness," come up on my feed, but mm-hmm. I I didn't watch it until we were researching this. So when I mentioned that in the Lululemon. Yes. Episode that we did. Flooded with emails and DMs. Yes. That's it's actually totally wrong. That's not what happened. The New York Times has even come out and said they were wrong. And that is true. They they totally did. So we decided we've got to cover this.
0: Yeah. And I'm glad we did. Yeah. It's, me too, and it's, for sure. You know, almost any case that we cover, you got you start to get an affinity for the person and man, I like mm-hmm. Kitty a lot. Oh, I don't yeah. really like her. Yeah. I just yeah. It's, it's a- uh
1: it's I was it was very hard to read um an article that was specifically about Mary Ann Yes. And just how they had to completely hide their relationship except behind closed doors, you know, and everything, and just thinking how well, unbearable it would be to grieve you're who everyone's just like oh that's your roommate your friend and you're like no this was my lover but no one knows that yeah you know and it's just man yeah it's rough and the witness the documentary the witnesses who did you i sobbed in it you know what i i think because you told me that you did i went into it like with kind of a guard up okay so i didn't sob but um, the ending especially is very That took powerful. me out. Yeah. Took me out. Yeah. And
0: that's Paris came around the corner. I was like, are you okay? There's also some parts we'll talk about in part two that uh I had to rewind the, the, sh- the, mo- the documentary because Paris was screaming at the television and I uh, said, I actually have to watch this for work purposes. <laughs> could you, <laughs> could you stop? Yeah. Uh, but he was like, this is bullshit. So it's enraging. It is enraging. And, for and sure. again, too, we cover a lot of bad people and uh, a lot of heinous crimes. Uh, uh Mr. Mosley, uh, there are no words. Go Never... fuck
1: yourself. Well, he's dead now. So uh, I mean, a, it's
0: a Patrick Bateman level of mm-hmm. violence and re- emotional reaction, and it's chilling. It's mm-hmm. th- chilling to to read about what he did and to listen to recordings and whatnot. So <sighs> buckle up, as we always say. It's quite a quite a time we'll have.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm glad to all 1,000 of you that let us know that <laughs> <laughs> this case was not what we thought it was because it's it was very interesting and fascinating, and um, I always like to learn. And if we misspeak, I definitely, especially about something like this, I'm like, damn, the whole world got it wrong. Yeah just now, another cog in the machine. Yeah, now we <laughs> now know. Now we're fixing it. Speaking of getting stuff wrong,
0: people said that you don't say Loveland. You say mm-hmm. Loveland. First of all, I'm from Texas. I say Loveland. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's just how it is. If I go to Loveland, you'll know. You'll know me as an outsider, and that's okay. I'm fine to be marked. But, Abigail, you yes. got an email, and you forwarded me the link, and I, you said wipe clean your schedule for this evening's television viewing because you're going to watch <laughs> A live video production of Hot Damn, It's the Loveland Frogman. <laughs> and boy, did I watch it. I'll it's tell fa- you what.
1: Fantastic. Yes. Abigail, such a small world. She said she was, she's from Loveland, Loveland, or from near. And she was setting up a training to train people for whatever she does. And she was listening to the show. And then she just, because she is a very into the, musical theater, decided to like Google some of the cast members Turns out she was training one of the cast members. Reaches out to them. Told her about the show. Cast member loved it. Reached out to the director of Hot Damn, It's the Loveland Frogman. What do we get? We get an MP3 of the live show. Thank you I'll very much. I'll tell you what.
0: Peepaw is the star. That yes. man gives his all. The oh, music is great. It bless is uh him. It's they got a lot of bangers in that. Mm-hmm. There's choreography. It's impressive. And I'll tell you what, it made me miss theater so yes. much. God, it made miss me miss com-
1: It made me miss community theater real bad. Yeah, so much. But it's yeah. a great show. It's funny
0: and it's like I said, the music's good and like that main guy. Boy, and they played with a live band, which is very hard in Bluegrass. a musical.
1: Yes, so very good impressive. job, you guys. Yes. Also, music related, Laurel. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for gifting us the Promising Young Woman soundtrack on iTunes. Still have not seen the movie. Heard from a thousand people that it is amazing and she yeah. should win for Best Actor. Have not watched it yet either. I gotta.
0: I think I got to psych myself up to, to watch it and get into the mood. Is it
1: going to be a rough emotional ride? It's about sexual assault, so that's oh, always, okay. I got to so, get the uh, right mindset. A real, a real feel-good flick.
0: You know, I think it's it turns the concept on its head, but I think I need to get in the right headspace yes. uh, for same, that. Yes, same, same. I got a, a box in the mailbox, in the P.O. box, from Stephanie of 1606 Supply Co. She sent stickers, pins, mugs, uh, and... They're very funny designs. Yes. They're good-looking designs, but they say disappointed but not surprised, or I'd rather not. I like the praying mantis that says devour your enemies. Mm-hmm. There's an apple that says, of course, the first sin was a woman eating. So a lot of cute stuff. So thank you for that as well. Thank we you, guys. We appreciate all the so lovely gifts.
1: Much. We do. Always. Yes. And we appreciate all of you. And this episode is for... Uh, I put in... The, we, we always say... We'd like to shout out who suggested it, and I put in the outline, suggested by 1,000 people, and then Heather put, correction, 1 million. So <laughs> to all 1 million of you, uh, here you go. I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Catherine Susan Genevieve was born July 7, 1935, in Brooklyn, New York. The oldest daughter of Italian-Americans, Vincent, the proprietor of Bay Ridge Coat, Apron, and Towel Supply, and his wife, Rachel. Known as far back as grade school as Kitty, she was a dutiful older sister to her four younger siblings, Vincent Jr., Susan, Bill, and Frank. According to interviews of neighbors in Kitty Genovese, a true account of a public murder and its private consequences, by Catherine Pellinero, Kitty had a comfortable childhood with her loving family. She was the class comedian, according to classmate Mae Treza, and her peers seemed to agree, voting Kitty class cut-up of Prospect Heights High. I have to take a moment and talk about Catherine Pellinero.
0: She's featured in the witness documentary. Her book is a fucking powerhouse. I mean it's Which so one is good. she
1: in the documentary? She's
0: in the end when Bill is doing a speech. He's doing a panel at the college and they're doing like intervention training. She's on the panel with them. I believe she's got blonde hair and she's wearing a blue dress. Okay. Um, yeah. And so she's on that panel, but her the resources uh you know sources cited in the the back of the book it's extensive the book is written in a narrative form so if you find yourself thinking boy I'd like a true crime book I'd like to know more about this case check this book out because it's written like almost like a novel but mm-hmm. every single bit in there is cross-referenced sourced cited checked uh so it's fantastic and it really does it humanizes all the characters. We only have so much time in two episodes to dive into Kitty's life, Marianne's life, Winston Mosley's life, and she and the the defense attorneys. Back, I mean, she goes down deep into each of them. I've listened to the audiobook and read the Kindle just to really familiarize myself. It's fantastic writing and just really, really
1: well sourced. Awesome. So it's a good like see also for more information. Mm-hmm. Her family moved from Brooklyn to New Canaan, Connecticut after Kitty graduated high school from Prospect Heights in June of 1953. According to Bill in the documentary The Witness,
0: My parents decided the city was getting too dangerous.
1: In fact, their mother had witnessed a murder on the streets of New York. Having graduated high school, Kitty decided to stay in Brooklyn with her grandparents. As Bill says,
0: Much to our parents' dismay.
1: While Kitty had a good relationship with all of her siblings, she was particularly fond of Bill. Despite their 12-year age difference, the two had a special bond. In The Witness, Bill remembers fondly how he and his sister would stay up talking late into the night on the weekends when she drove up to Connecticut in her red Fiat to visit her parents and siblings. It was this closeness and his desire to learn more about what happened that fateful night that prompted Bill to make the documentary The Witness 50 years after his sister's heinous murder. And he talks about how he would just ask her tons of questions and
0: she would always answer him and be like, Mm -hmm. keep asking questions, stay curious, which is then ironic that he couldn't stop asking those questions after losing her.
1: He says several times in the documentary, he calls himself obsessed Mm -hmm. because his siblings, one in particular, the oldest one, the oldest brother, really wants to just not talk about it, Mm -hmm. kind of, which is what the family did after she was killed. No one talked about it. And it ended up being that because no one talked about her – no one wanted to talk about her death, they in turn didn't talk about her life. And she Mm -hmm. was almost just erased from the family memories. Then we always say, you know, in all the cases we're covered, you're not defined by those last few moments, the the worst thing that ever happened to you that that ended your life. And that is kind of what happened with her. And this documentary – I mean, you can just see – how he's just working through things mentally, trying to get a grip on stuff and and overcome stuff.
0: Yeah. when he was, when she passed away, you know, I think it's hard that you want to talk about it and grieve that way. And Mm -hmm. he said it ruined their family's life. It had a bad impact on both his parents' health. The mom was super depressed. So it's one of those where you want to talk about it, but then you see it's negatively impacting your parents. So you don't, but then you're pushing it all down Mm -hmm. and trying to deal with it in different ways. Mm -hmm. So,
1: Yeah, and then his trajectory in life was inevitably, he decided to uh, go into the Marines because of what he thought happened to his sister. Yeah. Not long after graduating high school, Kitty married a military cadet and college graduate named Rocco in 1954. However, the marriage would be short-lived. It was annulled before the end of the year. Many years later, in an attempt to learn more about his sister's life and brief marriage, Bill emailed Rocco. While Rocco replied, he wasn't interested in opening up a dialogue. Instead, he asked for privacy, telling Bill,
0: My relations with Kitty shall remain a mystery forever.
1: So, in my research, and because it's no secret, well, it comes out that she uh, was a lesbian but was living a closeted life because it was not very accepted lifestyle back then I would believe that Rocco knew what was going on but he still respected her even 50 years later too if she didn't want that disclosed to her family he wasn't going to say something like that and I respect that
0: and apparently too when she and Marianne got together Marianne said she told her Kitty told Marianne I've been married before but I took care of it Pretending to be straight didn't work for me, and that's why I want to live in the city
1: where I can be free and and kind of do what I want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kitty bounced around between jobs and places to live, staying with her parents in Brooklyn and working in the insurance industry. For a brief period of time, she had a side hustle as a bookie, placing bets for patrons of the sports bar where she worked. Eventually, she settled in Queens, finding her place working for a female-owned bar called Ev's 11th Hour Tavern. Kitty was beloved by customers and trusted by Evelyn, the bar's owner, who promoted Kitty to manager by the time she was 25 years old. Soon, she began working doubles in order to save money for what she really wanted to do, open an Italian restaurant. According to the book, Kitty Genovese, The Murder, The Bystanders, and The Crime That Changed America. And Kitty kind of had this attitude of, you know, anything's possible. You can do whatever you
0: want to do, live the life you want to carve out for yourself, and when they met, Marianne was working as a typist. And she just said, is this what you want to do forever? And Marianne's like, no, not really. And she said, well, why don't you go work at a bar and maybe someday we can open something together. Mm-hmm. And she said, I, I'm not the type of person to open a bar. And she said, you can do anything you want.
1: Yeah. In The Witness, two former patrons of Ev's regaled Bill with stories of Kitty's time there, including how she went with one of them to the hospital when his wife gave birth. They spoke of her fondly, describing her as a pussycat, I'm calling the bar her home away from home. And they also said people could like borrow
0: money from her. They knew yeah. that she was like good for it. Also on the bookie thing, she got arrested for that. Yeah. And that
1: that famous picture of her, like on her Wikipedia page, is her mugshot that they yeah. use all over the place. It's all yeah, she kind of looks uh Audrey Hepburn esque. Mm-hmm. And Bill says in the witness, he ne he ne- never knew she knows she was doing any of that. This is all stuff he found out many years later. But then when he went back to look at that picture he realized it was her mugshot because he could see the string hanging around her neck mm-hmm. that her number would have been hanging off of and they said she was just one of those types of bartenders where she joked with you she was like more of a, a patron than even a, mm-hmm. a worker there and they could borrow money from her I mean to go with one of them who knows why she went maybe the guy was drunk and couldn't drive himself and his wife went to labor or maybe they were just friends and he was yeah. she went to go to go visit or whatever but she um i imagine could be herself in the city it's it just breaks my heart to think like you're having to live this one life in the city where you can be yourself and be free. Mm -hmm. And then on the weekends when you go home, you know, she would take Marianne and Marianne of course was known as her roommate and her friend. Mm -hmm. But Marianne even said it was never confirmed, but she thinks Kitty's mom knew what was going on and that Uh. she was always very nice to her and everything. A mom knows. So I think so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But they would say, why don't you have a man? And she would say, I make more money than any man and no man could support me. Boom. Boom. I'm fine. I'm fine as I am. And mm-hmm. she also, I mean, the 60s back then in, in New York, the cops would go, they would raid bars in Greenwich Village where, that were known to be gay or lesbian bars. They would take payouts of like, we're going to start hassling your customers if you don't pay us out. So it was not super safe, but Ev's was a place that, like they said, she could be herself and Mm -hmm. hang out and also that she didn't fraternize with the patrons that she was friendly to everybody and she was but she didn't go home at night with anyone you know it wasn't drama because she was there to manage she Mm
1: -hmm. was the financial person and she was a boss eventually kitty rented an apartment in the upscale neighborhood called q gardens in a building located at eighty two seventy austin street she shared the apartment with mary ann zalonko her girlfriend of nearly a year speaking to bill and the witness about how the two met Marianne described how Kitty originally approached her at a lesbian bar in Greenwich Village in March of 1963. After the two began dating, Marianne told Bill, I fell
0: very much in love with her.
1: Other residents and neighbors, as well as Kitty's family, were unaware of the nature of Kitty and Marianne's intimate relationship. Carl Ross, a neighbor and a gay man himself, was the only neighbor who knew Kitty and Marianne's secret, according to the Pellinero book. Patrons of the bar where she was a manager also claimed it was no secret Kitty was gay, telling Bill and the witness she was uh, one of the boys. Tony Corrado, now 84 years old, still owns the upholstery shop underneath the apartment where Kitty and Marianne lived. In a 2004 interview with the New York Times, Corrado recalls Kitty's cheerful disposition and how upon first meeting her, he assumed the women would be throwing wild parties above his store. To the contrary... Corrado found the women were quiet and respectful neighbors, which fit in nicely with the neighborhood. I used to say, gee, nothing ever happens in Kew Gardens, and all of a sudden, this
0: nightmare. Yeah, when they moved in, he thought they were flight attendants because there was mm-hmm. an a airport nearby and that, uh, yeah, they were going to be party girls. He carried a couch for him, and Kitty tried to pay him because she just, you know, it wasn't like oh, I'm a girl, you have to carry my couch. It's like, would you do a favor for me? And I will Mm -hmm. compensate you for that. And he said, oh, no, of course not. We're neighbors, you know, no big deal.
1: She was super independent. uh, A boss in the the witness, they interview a couple of her high school friends that say, you know, she was super popular. It Mm -hmm. was an honor to be part of her clique. Everyone wanted to be her friend. But she was also kind of a rebel. Mm -hmm. And even though she was super smart, She didn't really apply herself in school and would skip a lot. I feel like I can relate to this a bit. (laughs) And, um, you know, I think when she got to New York, she was finally really coming into her her own and her groove and just a life cut way too short.
0: When she wanted to live in Kew Gardens because it was a nice neighborhood, but Mm -hmm. they picked this 82-70 apartment because it was cheaper and basically it was the cheapest Smallest place in the nicest neighborhood. Instead of living in a bigger place in a less nice neighborhood, she specifically wanted this nicer area. So it's just the as we always say, all the little twists and turns mm-hmm. that we take that we don't know we're gonna end up where we're gonna end up at. Yep. Yep.
1: Sinisterhood will be right back. On march twelfth, nineteen sixty four, twenty-eight year old Kitty worked her shift as manager at Ev's from eight AM to six PM. She had plans that evening with a friend, Jack and his brother. She left work around 6.20 p.m. and spent the evening having dinner and drinks with the two men. Kitty returned to Ev's Tavern around 3 a.m. She spoke with the night bartender, Victor Haran, who later confirmed, according to the Pellanero book, that she originally had plans to stay the night over with a regular customer, Bessie Thompson and her husband, who lived above the tavern. This would save Kitty the commute back to the bar in the morning, where she was scheduled to open at 8 a.m. When Kitty changed her mind and decided to return home, Victor asked, Why don't you stay upstairs? You'll be better off. Kitty replied, No, I'm going home. I'll be fine. According to the Pelinero book, the New York Times had recently reported that crime rates were low. People in the neighborhood even felt comfortable enough to sleep with their doors unlocked. Surely, getting back to her apartment would be uneventful. And Marianne had gone bowling
0: with her friends. So mm-hmm. they, normally they spent the, night to, the evenings together once they both got off work. Because Marianne right. worked like 11 to 7 and Kitty worked 8 to 6. But this is—it's just again—it's like mm-hmm. you start to see how things line up in such a almost—it feels like an inevitable way where no one did anything. You know, she didn't do anything wrong by going out with her friends. It just so happens that that's how fate, yeah, moved in that that mm-hmm. night.
1: Yeah, she Marianne got back to the apartment around eleven and mm-hmm. went to bed. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but also it's if she had stayed at the tavern. Like she originally planned, you know, it's just all those, we always say like, so we're always walking this fine line between life and death and those little decisions that you make. If you left the house five minutes sooner, you could have been in this car wreck. If you'd left it five minutes later, you may have avoided one. It's, yeah. if she had stayed over at the tavern, it probably would have been another person that this happened to that night. Yeah. Or, you know, she, she left early from drinks.
0: You just never know that we just have to live our lives and. It's weird. It's just, it's eerie to see how how the road turns and, and kind of directs you down that path of, mm-hmm. of her name being known all these years later mm-hmm. for not, I think none of us would want to be known.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. As Kitty walked to her red Fiat, she had no idea that a man was watching her, a man driving a white Chevrolet Corvair. The man was Winston Mosley, a 29-year-old business machine operator from the Ozone Park neighborhood in Queens. His only reason for being out that night was to find a woman to rape and kill. He carried with him a long-bladed hunting knife and had Kitty in his sights. He tailed her to the parking lot of the railroad station roughly 100 feet from her apartment building. When Kitty got out of her parked red Fiat and began walking home, Mosley began following her on foot. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't
0: like, uh, you know, she was walking past him on the street and he just happened to attack no.
1: her. No. He saw her at a stoplight. They made eye contact, and he yes. followed her all the way back to where she parked the car. Oh, yeah. He saw her walk and get in the car, and that's and again, the one. You think if you're parking and you know that your apartment is 100 feet away, mm-hmm. you're like, sh- nothing's going to happen. You're you're almost on just autopilot getting home. You're already in the door thinking about what you're going to do and what you're mm-hmm. going to say. Especially it's a thing you've done 100 times. Yeah. Kitty noticed Mosley following her and began to quicken her pace. Mosley did the same, and quickly caught up to her. Before he even reached her, Kitty began screaming, Help! over and over as she ran up her street. Then, at 3.20 a.m., he caught her. He stabbed her in the back with his large knife, as Kitty fell to her knees and let out a blood-curdling scream. As he stabbed her three more times, Kitty continued to scream,
0: Oh my God, he stabbed me! Help me! Somebody please help me! Yeah, she had on a puffy coat, and he came up and and stabbed her in the back with this big, long knife.
1: You know, I mean, I think a lot of women have been walking down the street somewhere or in a parking garage or something like that, and you see someone, and you immediately are like, this isn't going to go well. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm in danger. If you're on the street at 3 a.m. by yourself, and no one's around, and you see this guy walking towards you— your gut immediately just drops. And sh- she knew before he even got to her, like this, he's going to try to kill me. She was screaming before he even got to her. And that's what he said. She was frightened as he was walking
0: towards her. He knew that she was frightened because she started to quicken her pace. So then he starts running. He also had a long overcoat on and had the knife down to his side. And he had on a stocking cap at this point. He changes hats halfway mm-hmm. through this. Um, So kind of this head down. He's a thin guy, but he's taller and walking with purpose toward Mm -hmm. you at 3 a.m. and you're the only two people on the street. It's one thing if somebody's walking on the other side of the road, yeah, they don't give a shit about you. But a person who has locked in on you as Mm -hmm. a target, he I mean, he was out that night for that purpose. Oh,
1: yeah, yes. And she was petite. Yes. Even though he was not that big, she was very tiny. Mm -hmm. The attack did not go unnoticed. A voice rang out in the darkness from the Mowbray, the apartment building across the street. It belonged to Michael Hoffman, At just 14 years old, he didn't mince words, screaming, Shut the fuck up! His grown-up neighbor, a few stories up, Robert Moser, leaned out his window and inquired, What's going on down there? Followed by, Leave that girl alone. Despite initial reports saying no one called the police, Michael Hoffman insists that his father did, in fact, call, saying, There's a woman being attacked. She's staggering around outside. According to NPR, Hoffman claims the cops ignored his father's call, and didn't enter it into the logbook. Mr. Hoffman also claimed that the next day when the police showed up to investigate the murder, they gave him dirty looks when he boldly said, Maybe you should have come when I made the phone call. Hattie Grund, a resident of Kew Gardens at the time, told Bill Genovese and the witness that she also called the police after hearing Kitty's screams for help. According to Hattie, she didn't even finish telling the officer on the phone why she was calling before he cut her off, saying, We already got the calls. Like Mr. Hoffman's alleged call, Hattie's was also not recorded in the police logs that night. And there was another person that called, and she was
0: scared to talk to the police, so they did answer, and then she hung up. But um, Winston Mosley said, oh, you know, at that that hour, people just go back to sleep.
1: There's a lot of uh, he-said-she-said type stuff with, did you call the cops? Did they not call the cops? A lot of stuff got lost in translation. Hattie Grund in The Witness seems like a very credible witness. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even though she's got to be in her late 70s now, Mm -hmm. remembers it like it was yesterday. And she said there were because Bill says, you called the cops? She goes, always. I always called the cops. There were always a few of us that called the cops when something was wrong. A lot of people didn't want to get involved, but there were always a few, you know, that, that did the right thing. And she said... I think other people probably also called the cops, but they were told they already got the calls. Yeah, and
0: it was a nice neighborhood. They didn't, they left their doors unlocked. They didn't expect to hear. The noise in the street at that time usually was from a bar nearby, but Mm -hmm. that bar had no customers and had happened to close early that night. But, you know, if you're asleep, you don't know that, and you hear screams, you may think, ah, it's some people from the bar.
1: Yeah, a lot of them said, and... We'll get into a lot of the bystander stuff in the next episode, but they thought it was a domestic thing mm-hmm. of two, you know, a drunk couple stumbling out of the bar or whatever. Because when they looked out, when they heard the screams, they looked out. They only saw her. Yes, or they saw no one because she'd already gone around the the corner. So again, it's those things where, like you said, it's almost inevitable that some- because just nothing was lining up.
0: Yes, and the person who was seven stories up that saw the attack says. Well, it looked like he was punching her, because you can't mm-hmm. see at night, in the dark, limited street lamps, hovering over someone. All you can see is the motion of their body. So, you know, I think it's unfair to say they saw something and did nothing. It's like they saw pieces of stuff. Some people didn't. Mm-hmm. Some people slept through it. One one guy, I think it was um, Robert Moser, wanted to go outside, and his wife said, no, you're not going to go out there. So he opened the window and started yelling yeah. at him.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: so, you know, you asked... Uh, Paris said as we were, I was going through all this research, he's like, you would be so mad at me because I would so be the person that would run out there and do something because he's just always... He's that person that just goes and gets involved and stuff. And um, at the time when I was reading about Robert Moser's wife, I thought, oh, my God, she's terrible. She t- told her husband not to go out there. I would so be that wife. Don't go oh, out there would, and get yeah. attacked.
1: I We should point out that 911 did not exist Correct. at this time. You had to call so the... You had to call your local police station and, you know, if you didn't know the number, you had to get out the yellow pages and mm-hmm. look that number up. You're going to get an an officer that answers the phone, you know. And people said that they kind of got a lot of attitude when they they called about stuff a lot of times because they just – the cops didn't want to deal with it or, or whatever. So mm-hmm. who's to say that these people did call the cops and they were like, yeah, yeah, we know. And maybe they had gotten other calls, but they – Just didn't show up. Maybe that's why they eventually show up so fast when they get, when they, we know for a fact that they got called. I don't, I don't know. I, uh, I also would say, no, you're not going out there because you never know what you're going to get yourself into. And if there's a guy on the street with a hunting knife, who's only motive or his, all he wants that night is he's bloodthirsty. Well, then he's going to kill the other person, too. And he's killed I would twice say before. Call, exactly. I would call I would say call the cops. Although I have told a story before about how I told Tommy to get out of the car on and, 635 yeah. <laughs> and get involved in a road rage fight that was going on between two women. So uh which was a stupid move. I should not have done that. But, yeah, I'm I'm always of the mindset that, man, but then I don't know.
0: There, and and I, there's training Well, and I took a bystander training where it, it talks about there's different ways and it depends on your safety is important. So jumping yes. in the middle of a fight may not be the best thing. So maybe mm-hmm. you try to distract them. Maybe you try to scream at them. Shut the fuck up. Leave that girl alone. That's direct action that you can do documenting it. Nowadays, we would probably people would probably record stuff with their cell phones, as mm-hmm. sick as that sounds. But does that help? Because then you have the person on video and you can use it for evidence calling the police that helps to to uh, document it so there's various ways that i you know it's hard to say what's right or wrong for a person because you know if your safety is at issue that might not be the best course of action but doing something and you know i think it's unfair like we we say with the paper nobody did anything these leave that girl alone that scared him off Mm-hmm. so yeah, temporarily
1: yeah mostly later told police that he wasn't too worried that he had been spotted by moser mm-hmm. saying.
0: I had a feeling the man would close his window
1: and go back to sleep, according to the New York Times. However, at the time, he was startled enough by the neighbors to run off. With her attacker gone, Kitty pled with her neighbors again, screaming,
0: Help! If somebody doesn't help me, I'm going to die!
1: With no one coming to her aid, Kitty stood to her feet and began stumbling home. With all the stores along the street closed, she didn't find refuge until reaching the back entrance to her apartment building. "'At the top of the stairs inside the vestibule "'was the door to her friend Carl Ross's apartment. "'Pleading, Kitty screamed,
0: "'Carl! Carl, help me, I'm stabbed!'
1: "'Accounts vary as to whether Carl Ross opened his door "'or merely listened through the crack. "'He did hear her, though. "'He picked up his phone and dialed, "'not the police, but his friend in a neighboring county. "'When the friend told him to call the police, "'Carl hung up. "'Again, he did not dial the police,' Instead, he climbed on the roof and asked a neighbor to call Kitty's neighbor, Greta Schwartz, to come check on her. When later questioned about why he didn't call the police or yell out to the man stabbing his friend, Carl said, according to the Pelinero book, I didn't want to get involved. A sentence that would become the zeitgeist of the American climate at the time. I have conflicting feelings about Carl Ross.
0: I'm here to hear them. So on the one hand, Bill Genovese in a heartbreaking moment is looking at the stairwell and realizing how close that door was. Mm-hmm. It's we'll a hear-
1: shotgun. It's like one flight, probably uh-huh. 15, if that, stairs, just from yeah. you walk in, straight up the stairs, doors right there, boom. I mean, you immediately see it when you walk in. You would be at the bottom of the stairs in seconds. Yes. So he definitely heard.
0: He definitely, at first he didn't know it was her, but she says, she's screaming, she's screaming, Carl, it's Kitty. Like, she identifies herself. And they were friends. They were good friends. Close friends. He's the only neighbor that knows the true nature of her and Marianne's Mm -hmm. relationship. So on the one hand, one must ask oneself, why would you let your friend, in whatever state they're in, say he assumes that she's drunk and she passed out, which was not really like her, Um, and he thinks, wow, that's crazy, she's drunk at the bottom of my stairs, Why would you not go down and check on her? Mm -hmm. The fact that she specifically says the sentence, I have been stabbed and I am dying, Mm -hmm. would lead you to, at the very least, call the police, right? However, in New York City at the time, in 1964, the climate, and in America at the time, the climate for a homosexual man was very bad and dangerous. Mm -hmm. So, he never, that I saw in researching, he never said, I didn't want to get involved because I was afraid the cops would think I did it. I was afraid that they would try to pin it on me. I was afraid that as a gay man, I would be persecuted. But I can understand if you're used to being in bars and cops hassle you and arrest you for no reason or want you to pay them off so they don't arrest you, possibly in a self-preserving move, you would not call the police. Do I think it was wrong that he didn't? Yes. Do I think it was shitty that he didn't go down there and help her? Because it's your friend and deal with the consequences later, especially given what's about to happen next. But it's always hard for me to have a gut. I mean, I do have gut reactions where I'm like, fuck this guy. What the hell? He didn't go help his friend. But when I try to look at it in context, mm-hmm. I try to ask myself, why would he? Because it seems wild. He was also he would,
1: he was also Drunk.
0: Drunk. So it seems wild to you, right, that he would call a friend in another county. He goes and climbs on the roof and hollers through a window at somebody else. And he's, first of all, not sober. But also, why would you go through all these hoops but for to to ask yourself, you know, to say, I can't call the cops because this isn't going to end well for me. Mm -hmm. Selfish? Yeah, for sure. Dangerous? Because what happens? Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, it's I think we don't live in a world of, you know, with the exception of Winston Mosley you know heroes and villains here right like he right. was just acting
1: in, in a self-preserving way in a selfish way for sure it is yeah that moment where bill is like carl could have ended it she'd still yeah. be alive if he oh, yeah. had if he had done something because when she initially makes her way into the unlocked back entrance of the apartment mm-hmm. you know she just collapses on the floor she's laying there at this point she's just by herself mm-hmm he could have i mean could have would have should have if he had opened the. if he did open the door because we don't know for sure at, at that point if he opened the door and saw her or was just listening if he opened the door and saw she was by herself and bleeding he could have run down grabbed her been back up in his apartment before mosley ever finds her again and mosley would not have heard her and fi- yeah. found her again yeah and even
0: if he's down there with her Mosley said repeatedly he wanted an easy... He didn't want to fight. He said, I wasn't going to attack couples and I wasn't going to attack a man. I was looking for a lady alone or even two girls alone. He said he wanted... He knew what he wanted. He said he either wanted to rape and kill someone or kill and rape someone. Mm -hmm. Because, again, this is the third time he's attacked a person, a a female, and was like, I'm not looking for a fight. I'm looking for... Because he he had to get home to his wife and kids and five dogs. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. He was
0: on a schedule.
1: Yes. So... You know, it is. I think you made an excellent point. It's easy for all of us. I mean, clearly the media grasped onto it as well to say, how could this person not have helped? Mm-hmm. But you have to step back and look at the bigger picture of what was going on in this person's life, like their mindset. What was their experience like maybe with the cops that had mm-hmm. before then that maybe, I mean, and we. Obviously, still see that today. So yeah, you know there was a lot that we don't know about, and we can't really fill in the blanks. That, and I, nothing I've ever seen. He has never come out and said anything else about it.
0: No, and it's a really privileged position to be able to say, "Well, just call the police." Yeah, because how nice for you that the police are not your enemy. Mm -hmm. But there was in the Peladera book, she talks about there was a Life magazine spread within months of this, within weeks or months of this, that was all about the hidden dangers of homosexuals Mm -hmm. in America. And that was boiling under the surface that they're all in New York City and they're your neighbors. So if you've had these bad experiences, of course you're not going to call the cops. Again, it's at the end, and the flip side is he let his friend die. Yeah,
1: sure. Yes, it's a... Tough choice. Yes, yeah, yeah. While Kitty lay on the floor bleeding and screaming for help, Mosley sat in his car back at the train station. Thinking about his next move, according to later statements made to the police, he decided no one was going to try to intervene if he went back to finish what he had started with that. He moved his car to a different spot, changed his hat and once again began hunting Kitty. And also from the witness's perspective, one attack,
0: the, the initial attack happened on one street. And then the door to this is on is on the flip side of the building, on the other side Mm -hmm. of the street. So then people who see him going and checking all the handles of the door storefronts, wondering where she is, see a guy in a different hat. If they even saw the first attack, because they from a vantage point, it's impossible for anyone to see this entire attack start to finish. Right. Yes. Some people could have heard parts of it, some louder than others. But it would have been impossible to visually see start to finish what happened.
1: And it's impossible for anyone except Carl Ross to see where she lays now. Yes. And, and the, the neighbor and the, then happens. Yes,
0: the neighbor in the other door at the top of the stairs,
1: but they never said that that person opened the door. They may have slept through it. Hearing her screams for help, Mosley found Kitty on the floor of the apartment entryway. There, he continued the attack, this time more brutal than before. He first cut her throat, so she couldn't scream anymore. Then he cut open her clothes and stabbed her in the stomach. As he continued to slash her body, he only paused when Carl Ross's door at the top of the stairs opened. In a later confession, Mosley said the door opened, at least twice, maybe three times, and that he heard a mumbled voice from the top of the stairs while he was attacking Kitty. Undeterred, Mosley continued stabbing Kitty before robbing her, sexually assaulting her, and fleeing the scene. From the first stab wound on the street, the entire nightmare lasted a grueling 32 minutes. He was... uh...
0: monstrous. Again, this is... Never... Not since I've read... I mean... I think it's... You know, you can't say one thing is worse than the other, but from the source, hearing him describe what he did, sort of... And of course, there's no recording, but reading about how he described what he did in a very matter-of-fact fashion... And how she had falsies in, which falsies were a thing you wore back in the 60s. It yes. kind of was like a padded bra. And that he pulled her bra, when he cut her bra off, she had falsies and that made him mad. And so mm-hmm. then he slashed her on her breast and then he stole the falsy and he was touching it. And that he was, I mean, it was meticulous going yeah. through her pockets. It is, uh, if you would, if you're interested in more of the details of the actual attack, it is all laid out in the. Confession notes and it's covered in the Pellanero book graphically. Again, not since I read American Psycho have I been so disturbed by what I read.
1: It's not for the faint of heart. And it's um when we say sexually assaulted, that is putting it lightly. And you know, I think sometimes people hear podcasts and go, Well, I want to
0: hear the dirty, gruesome details. This is a human being. She's got yeah. a she's got a brother who cares about her, she's got a family that cares about her. We don't need to recount yeah, you know, I think it's important to tell her story, but uh there's some gruesome parts, I think. Yeah, you can read read them in the Hell and Arrow book.
1: It's yes. available on Amazon. There you go. Yeah, the family couldn't even bring themselves to go to the trial yeah. where they would have heard all of that information. So, um, you know, if if people shield themselves from certain information to be able to cope and get through life, that is their right and uh if for some reason one of the family members was listening to this and they didn't want to know all of that, then we're not going to be the ones to, to tell them. Yeah. Having received the alarming call from Ross, Greta came down to see what was the matter. When she couldn't open the door, she headed back up to get Sophie Ferrar, a fellow neighbor and stay-at-home mom of two who was friendly with Kitty. Yeah, they said they
0: were close. She just leave her door open and say, mm-hmm. hey,
1: answer the phone if you hear it and just good Good friends. They would have tea and, and coffee and toast in the mornings and everything, and she was older than than Kitty and you know, probably had like not a not old enough to be her mom, but a big sister type of mm-hmm. friendship. Michael Ferrar, Sophie's son, told Bill Genevieves and the witness that his mom had to force open the door into the stairwell because Kitty's limp body was laying up against it. Once inside, Sophie cradled her friend telling Bill in the documentary that she could feel the stab wounds in Kitty's back. Sophie yelled for Carl to call the police while she did her best to calm Kitty down and held her as she relaxed into her arms. Her voice breaking, Sophie recalled the scene to Bill, saying, She was my
0: friend and I knew she was hurt and she needed help. That was my reason for flying down those stairs. And then when I came in, it kills me when I think about it. She had black leather gloves and all cuts all through the gloves on both her hands. I only hope that she knew it was me and that she wasn't alone.
1: So this is one of the most unreported poor yes. journalism things I've ever seen because none of this was reported. Sophie Ferrar's name was not in the New York Times mm-hmm. article that shortly comes out after this happens. Bill, nor anyone in the family, he had lived his whole life. Thinking his sister died alone and no one was there, and she just died b- bleeding on this floor with no one there. Totally not the case. Yeah. And they said, and she said Greta kind of stood behind
0: her, and that they had this moment where they said, Oh, this just happened. This person could come back. Hey, mm-hmm. keep an eye out. So you have, again, you have these two women who are able to comfort their friend, even in the face of possible danger, because he said he was oh, willing sure. to kill a woman. I mean, by then he had run off. But she said, Sophie said when she first grabbed a hold of Kitty, she started slapping at her because mm-hmm. she thought he was coming back for a third time. Um, but she said she just yelled, It's Sophie, it's Sophie, it's Sophie, it's Sophie. And once she finally, she said she kind of relaxed and nodded her head because by then she had had, you know, her throat. Yeah. And she's cut. completely bleeding out. And dude, I mean, her
1: body, her clothes have been cut off. Yeah. The police arrived on the scene with the minutes of being called. En route to the hospital, Kitty succumbed to her injuries and died in the ambulance. Dr. William binnenson assistant M.E., determined that her cause of death was bilateral pneumothorax, meaning air in her chest cavities compressed both of her lungs, making it impossible to breathe. This was caused by the multiple stab wounds. Marianne Zalonko was asleep in the apartment she shared with Kitty when police knocked on her door around 4 a.m. They informed her Kitty had been murdered. Grief-stricken, Marianne went to the hospital to identify her partner's body. Later, Kitty's father and uncle would do the same. Yeah, they
0: said that Vince couldn't go by himself, that he had to get yeah, the uncle to go with him.
1: And Mary, in the documentary The Witness, Bill does speak with Marianne, but she doesn't want to be filmed. So it's just the audio. But she said, you know, she's after she identifies her body, she's sitting in the hallway of the hospital. And the detective said, do you want me to take you home? And She wouldn't leave until she had been taken to the morgue because she didn't want her to be alone. Mm. And then she just goes back to her house and she said that she spent the next six months just a hermit in the apartment, Mm -hmm. uh, oscillating between crying and and drinking heavily. And then she finally said, I got to get my life together. And uh, she moved to Brooklyn, I believe, after that. And then a year later, finally started dating again but even now I mean she's in her 70s this this article was a few years ago said you know she thinks about her all the time and mm-hmm. she wonders what their life would be like now and she thinks that they would both be happy and hopefully would be together if not still friends and that Kitty would be probably own her own bar aww mm-hmm. around 7am Detective Mitchell Sang arrived at Kew Gardens he wanted to question Mary Ann who was trying to cope with the devastating news with alcohol supplied by fellow resident Carl Ross. Believing Ross was impeding his line of questioning, detectives saying arrested him for disorderly conduct, according to the History Channel.
0: Yeah, Ross kind of, they said, you got to leave. And he's like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm her friend. I'm here for her. And they said, we need to talk to her alone. And he, Carl Ross kicked a, the, the door, kicked the stoop or something. And they kind of said, all right, buddy, we're going to take you in. Because it wasn't that he was... I mean, he was kind of uh, blocking the investigation slightly. And so they, I think, wanted to get something out of him. And then when he appears before the judge, the judge hears kind of what had happened and says, well, if you would have stepped in, if, you know, probably a ton of people have died because people like you don't step up when it it matters.
1: Yeah, I haven't found anything. I'm going to do some more digging before our second episode to see if. There's anything that Carl Ross has said, because I haven't seen anything like that. I'm not even sure if he's still alive. We'll find all this out before the next one. I imagine, though, that every day for the rest of his life or still, he thinks about this. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Especially once
0: you hear that she was initially attacked and then was kind of in a safe haven within Mm -hmm. your grasp. And then the worst of what happened to her happened after you didn't call the police. Yeah. That would be a lot to live with.
1: And also, we didn't talk about this a minute ago, but if you have just been attacked and you do find that open door and you're, you know, you have that moment, I imagine, of, okay, I'm I'm going to be okay. Someone will come help me. I, he's gone. And then, like, straight out of a horror movie, the attacker shows back up to finish you off. You think, oh, it's, it's Carl, it's my friend, and I've
0: called his name and told him it's me, surely he'll come help me. And then the door opens and it's not who you want
1: it to oh, be. Oh, God. Well, this would not be the only time Marianne would be questioned. A few hours later, two more detectives arrived at the apartment, this time determined to get to the bottom of Kitty and Marianne's relationship. Over the next six hours, a grieving Marianne was forced to answer intimate questions about her sex life with Kitty, according to the History Channel. When the police questioned the neighbors, the fact the two women were lovers seemed to be their main focus. This led to Marianne becoming a suspect
0: early on. And Because Winston Mosley was so thin that some people said, well, it could have been a woman.
1: I This makes my stomach hurt. Yeah. It breaks my heart. I mean, the the grief this woman is experiencing, and then now... You're also having to experience the fear of being grilled by the cops because of Mm -hmm. your sexual preferences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Over the next five days, police conducted an investigation and came to a consistent description of their actual suspect, according to the Pelinero book. They were on the hunt for a male, possibly a light-skinned black man, around 25 years old, with a very slim build, driving a light gray or white car, possibly a Chevy Corvair. And, you know,
0: when they put together all the, well, what'd you see? Well, I think he was a really tan white guy. Well, I think he was a light skinned black guy. Well, I think he was driving a gray car. I think it was a white car. I think it was a beige car. So there were tons of witnesses. They just all saw kind of different things. But there was one or two that said, I know for a fact it was a Chevy Corvair. It has a super specific type of grill on the front. Mm -hmm. And I saw that grill and I know I'm telling you I know cars and I'm telling you it was a Corvair. So that's when they said, "Okay, well, we at least have one. Uh, piece of information to hang our hats on. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's 3 a.m. It's dark. We always say our memories are trash. Our oh. eyes are trash. Most of the people that w- that witnessed anything or saw him, because there were some witnesses that said they saw him get back into his car after the first attack. Mm-hmm. They've been woken up out of a deep sleep. You know, That's I him. mean, you, uh, Sophie Ferrar's son says that because he was, A child at the time and in the apartment when it happened and he remembers just being woken up out of a dead sleep by this blood-curdling scream and then he heard you know a bunch of chaos in the living room between his parents talking and his mom saying "It's, it's it's kitty she's been stabbed she's down in the stairwell so it's almost have you ever woken up and you think something just startled me awake. Did I hear a scream? Did I Mm -hmm. dream that? You know, that happens to me all the time. Like, I don't know if I just dreamt that or this really happened. And you you stay awake and you listen for a second. You don't hear anything else. So you go back to sleep. I'm
0: constantly waking up in a disoriented state from naps. Mm -hmm. That's like, I'll take a a Saturday or Sunday nap and you're like, oh, I'm like, well, how long have I been asleep? What time is it? Because on account of, you know, I'm running around and staying up late every night. So, you know, when you are... In that REM cycle, and you mm-hmm. wake up at the wrong time, for sure you're not gonna. You see something, and you don't know what it is. You don't know who it is, or how tall they are, or male, female, or what do they wear. And and especially too, he changed hats, so yeah. uh yeah, and was around a corner, and so there was just the for as much as they could do, the police try to get a consistent description.
1: Meanwhile, with Kitty's killer on the lamb a media-driven narrative perpetrated by the New York Times began forming claiming 38 people witnessed the murder of Kitty Genovese and did nothing to help. What followed would forever change the field of psychology, lead to the creation of the 911 system, and ultimately cost Bill Genovese both his legs. Oh, I feel drained. Yeah, this
0: this one's been a lot of... It's a lot of uh, facts to hold up in the air, especially with all the various witnesses that... that what they all saw what they said what they did what they said they did it's and then the real story and reading about yeah it's a lot it's, a lot. <laughs> it's but i think it's i i'm glad we did this research i'm glad oh, for all yeah. the people that have recommended it i think it's important to obviously if i mean you and i are great uh litmus test for what the common man common woman thinks you know we thought oh yeah it's the bystander effect everybody mm-hmm. knows that so I think it's good to to debunk that uh, idea and especially to talk about this person's life she was somebody and I think Bill tries to get get that uh thesis through in his documentary that she did she wasn't just Oh, that's New York. You know, you just die on the streets and everybody watches and nobody cares. It's like people cared. People oh, yeah. yelled for her. They said to leave her alone. They held her. They worried about her. So I think knowing that uh, she she was a person who mattered. I'm glad yes. we did this. I'm glad for yeah. all we've, we've studied.
1: Yeah. As far as what we think, I think that this is a prime example of someone's death overshadowing their life and now i because and it's all i think it's incredibly important as i know you do too to get the facts straight so i'm i am glad that we were made aware of that this isn't what we, we we've always thought it was and like s- with so many things when since we've been doing this show once we research them we realize oh the media just decided to do whatever the f they wanted interesting
0: this sells more newspapers cuz it, it it is a beautiful human story that when she said she just when Sophie Farrar said when I knew it Greta said something's wrong and I think it's Kitty because she could kind of see through Mm -hmm. the crack of the door that Sophie said I flew down the stairs Mm -hmm. I, I mean I couldn't run fast she didn't wait and wake her husband up or tell her I mean she just took off and that's the true power of a friendship of loving someone and caring about someone and I think that's not as maybe uh flashy and dramatic as and pushing this narrative of you think it's a nice neighborhood, but people are monsters. It's a lot mm-hmm. more salacious to push put it the other way. It's Oh, for sure. You know, what do we say? The truth is boring. I don't think it's, I don't think this truth is boring. I think it's beautiful that mm-hmm. you have somebody yeah. that loves you and that she was loved. And for her family to know she was loved.
1: It would have given her family so much more closure and changed the trajectory of their lives as well if they had known the truth from the beginning. And we'll get into all of that, the, um, the arrest, the trial, the bystander effect, and more in the next episode. Part two. We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost. So if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating this show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some
0: sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Ruling the Airwaves tier, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, and patron-exclusive video and audio content including our, our Am I the Asshole and our Relationship
1: segments where we read and discuss the best that Reddit has to offer. You also now have the fun perk of access to our Discord server where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We'll also be hopping on occasionally and hosting monthly Q and A's where you can ask us all your burning questions. Our next one is going to be this Saturday at 2 PM central time. We'll be using Crowdcast for this one.
0: We'll give you all the details on our social media as well as Patreon and the Patreon Facebook group. For patrons not in the U S you also have the option to pay in pounds or euros saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of
1: membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And Make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood
0: merch. Keep those pictures coming. Keep your eyes peeled for some new merch that's headed to the store now. But if you want to head over today and get some cool Sinisterhood swag like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos,
1: visit Sinisterhood.com and click shop on the top banner. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get
0: more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod, and like us on Facebook at
1: SinisterhoodKarusty. I am on, almost said I'm on Sinister. I am on Instagram at Christy and Wallace and on Twitter at Christy or GTFO. Heather?
0: Sinister is our new social media platform that we're launching. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, I'm on the existing social media platforms on Instagram at Heather versus the world and on Twitter at MCK versus the world.
1: As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy.
0: Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shoutouts. Emily Gibson. Sunny Sky. Sandy.
1: Victoria Goins. Casey Sandros. Kimberly S. Corinne Troshik. April Boucher. Kristen K, Tori Cummins. Paige. Danny A. Jess. Emily Jenkins. Laurel Becker. Jolene Kotzman. Rebecca Herman. Eric Brock. Karen Munoz. Violet Columbus, Abigail Breeze, Cassidy White, Brianna Boyd, Kate Martin, Kimber Keaton, Jesse Bourne, Aaron, Aaron Lamb, Jordan, M.K. Connor, Abby Peavy, Elizabeth Ahern, Bearded Susanu, Kristen Donnelly, Jamie, Jordan Shakespeare, Emily R., Kathy Penrose, Emma Coove. Allison Cheek, Bethany Franny, Marie Pesher, Megan Metz, Sarah Showput, Sharon Moore, Peggy Norris, Randa Hansen, Stephanie Wicker, The Morris family, Shannon, Hannah Robertson, and Anika E. Thank you guys so much for all your support. We hope we pronounced your names correctly. We sincerely appreciate you, especially during these trying times. Stay safe. Stay healthy and keep it creepy. (laughs) Sinister.